Hey, you're listening to Rock and or Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And on today's episode, I present to you an interview I conducted with guitar player, songwriter, Jeff Summers. Jeff was the brains behind an awesome early new wave of British heavy metal band called Weapon, whose song Set the Stage Alight is an absolute classic of that genre. Then Jeff joined the band with Paul Mario Day. So Paul had been an Iron Maiden and he had a band called More, and then he got a record deal and formed a new band called Wildfire. Jeff and a couple of members of Weapon ended up in Wildfire. And then the band Wildfire basically went on to become Gary Barden's band after Gary Barden left the Michael Schenker group, and that band was called State Trooper. So over the course of about less than 10 years, from the late 70s to the late 80s, Jeff was involved in these three different heavy metal hard rock bands, all of which flirted with success, but success never came, and eventually, in the late 80s, he left the music business. But Jeff will describe all of that on this episode. So this is a cool story of one guitar player, songwriter, talented guy, his experiences in the music business in the early 80s into the late 80s. He made great music with several different bands, but just never broke through. But he has a great legacy, and this is a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So let's hear the talk I had with Jeff Summers. between you know the biggest bands in the world and the and the bands that aren't the biggest bands in the world can sometimes be purely and simply luck yeah there's 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 something that you learn in the music business that there's so many so many ducks that need to be in a row for you to make it in this business it's not like sport if you're great at sport then it will happen for you because you know if you're better than everybody else it'll, it'll happen because people will notice but if you're a music business, you, the, the time's got to be right for you. First of all, the time's got to be right. You've got to have the material. You've got to have the talent. You've got to have people in the band. You've got to have the right management company, the right record company, the right promoters, and the right publishers. And if all of those ducks don't come in, don't literally line up, then it ain't going to happen. It's as simple as that. And also, you've also got other things where, you know, musicians tend to be uh, creative people, so they'll work on what they feel is right for them, and um, and and they'll turn down offers from other bands that go on and do really really well on the basis of the fact that they they believe in what they do, and that's what makes it great. Um, but you know, if any of those ducks are not in a row, believe you me, it won't happen. Yeah, and so you know, looking at a band like Weapon, so you guys did did the band yeah. form in 1980, or were you around before that? No, it was basically. The, I mean, the band became Weapon in 1980, but the um, but the band 
that was out in London and the UK playing Set the Stage Alight. And a lot of those songs from the, the original recordings back in 1980 was already doing that a couple of years prior to that. Weapon became Weapon when Danny joined, Danny Hines joined the band because we'd, um, we, were, uh, we were looking for a new singer and, um, and we found Danny and he found us, kind of an advert and melody maker that we both responded to. And, um, and we decided that the, name, the original name of the band wasn't right. So we changed it to Weapon. So that's when it became Weapon. But it, it had been actually out in the marketplace for maybe two or three years prior to that, in you know, playing the playing the, the venues in, in some of the some of the nice venues in London. So were you, did you start out as a a hard rock kind of band or so the band began before the new wave of British heavy metal was really happening? Yeah, I mean, the, the band really, it kind of started uh, with me at school, my school friends. And um, so we, we, I played um, guitar and sang, and we had a bass player and a drummer. And it kind of, you know, people fall away, um, you know, you know, the, the bass player decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And then we got another bass player and then the drummer, you know, fell in love or whatever, and he didn't want to do it anymore. And then we got a new drummer. And then I decided I didn't want to sing anymore. So we got a new, we got a singer in. So um, it eventually ended up in about 1979. Hard rock band, because, you know, set the stage alight. We always opened the set, set the stage alight from about maybe 1978. Wow. And, and we, we then played pretty much 80% our own material, but we also played one or two covers in amongst those. And they're a bit more obscure. There was a, there was a Gary Moore song that was off of um, his original solo album called Grinding Stone. And we used to play that one live. It's, it's, it's sort of like an you know, good time sort of boogie, blue, hard, heavy boogie song. So did sometimes we did a Thin Lizzy track called uh, "Are You Ready?" Pretty much, I think that was pretty much the only covers we did. The rest of it were were all songs that you know either I wrote myself or I co-wrote with uh, with the bass player at the time. So the new way the British heavy metal was kind of happening at that time. You know, all the bands that were from London at that time were all playing on the circuit at the same time that we were. We were actually called Fast Relief at that point, believe it or not. Terrible name, <laughs> but there was a lot of bands. You know, you know. You know, Iron Maiden, Samson, Saxon, who were called Son of the Son of a Pitch at that point. 
Motorhead had, had been been around for a few years. Bangle Praying Mantis, they were they, they came from the new wave British heavy metal era. There was a lots of those guys that were that were playing the circuit, certainly in London at the same time that we were. So and, and they all had sort of you know modicums of success in their own way. Obviously bands like Iron Maiden, and in particular, but you know maybe Saxon as well went on and did uh, did very well. Interestingly enough, the uh, both had great. Um, the timing was right for them. They were really good. They were really good, obviously, and um, and they had great management. You know, and I think that's probably the, the difference between, say, them, and maybe us and one or two other bands at the time. And it could be argued that we were pulling bigger crowds than they were at the time. Um, we just didn't. We just didn't get the break with the manager with the management company. Yeah, I think, in my opinion, set the stage alight is just as good as anything else. You know, one of my favorite songs that came out of that whole era, that whole genre or whatever. So. And you know, you did you guys actually record an album that wasn't released? Because you have a, there's a lot of songs that you know are really recorded well. It seems like you spent a lot of time in the studio, at least. Yeah, we did. We did at the time we recorded set the stage like we we recorded pretty much a whole album in those days. Then album was about eight or nine songs. It was vinyl, and, it, and you couldn't really get any more on vinyl in those days. Um, so we, we had eight or nine songs um, ready to go. Um, and they were recorded at really good recording studios. Well, they, they, were, they were produced independently. And we were financed at that time by um, Virgin. Richard Branson, who, who owns the company Virgin, had a, had a recording company and a publishing company at the time. And pretty much they decided they, they were going to sign us. And uh, so they put us in the studios um, to, to make, you know, master, master recordings, you know, which is, which is what we did. They were, all, they were all done really quickly. I mean, we, you know, we were a we were a seasoned live band at the time, and so we, we literally went into a set of stage alive. It was pretty much first or second take. You know, it was um, you know just straight in, and we did it. I mean, pretty much the lead vocal was live. Um, the only thing we did is we overdubbed the guitar solo, maybe we double tracked the guitar, and we did the uh, we did the backing vocals separate. Um, but it was pretty much live. We did that at exactly the same time as a song called Liar. And they were both recorded at a studio called, uh, God, let me think about it, the Town, the Townhouse, which is at Shepherd's Bush in London. And at that time, you know, the top bands were recording there. We we met Phil Collins, who was recording in the air tonight at the very same time in that recording studio. So, you know, that was the caliber of bands that were using that studio at the time. well it got out there in, in, in the world even back in those days I mean you probably heard the story about Lars Ulrich and uh, James Hetfield picking it up in an import shop in about 1981-1982 and they absolutely absolutely loved it they they, they, they loved it it's, it's actually in there there's a biography of, of Metallica 
and it talks about the influence of the new wave British heavy metal on Metallica. And, um, and they talk about that song in particular, about how they heard it, and it was so fast. Yeah. And it was, you know, they, they, they thought, you know, at the, I mean, bearing in mind that it probably seems relatively tame now, but in 1980, it was kind of breakneck speed, you know, it was, yeah, it was four young guys, totally and utterly overexcited in the studio, <laughs> playing everything too fast, you know. Yeah, there's a, there's a compilation that Lars Ulrich put together of New Wave of British Heavy Metal in maybe the early 90s, and I think Set the Stage of Light is the first song on there. It's, it's, it's called, it's called um, A New Wave of British Heaven. Oh, 79 Revisited, I think it's called. Right. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, I met I met Lars and James um, about 1983. I was playing in the band Wildfire at that point because mm-hmm. um, it had kind of imploded on the back of the fact that we couldn't get a decent management deal and the other bands were taking off. I'd, I'd been asked to join the band Wildfire and um, we were playing at a venue in London and Lars and James and Cliff Burton turned up. They'd heard our band, Wildfire, on on a rock show, a Friday rock show in the UK. It was actually called the Friday Rock Show on, on BBC Radio 1. It was hosted by a guy called Tommy Vance. Do you know Tommy Vance? Mm-hmm. Have you heard of him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we did we did a we did a, a live session um, on the Friday Rock Show. It was it was a big show at the time. I mean, you know, everybody that was into rock in the UK would listen to it on a Friday night before they went down the pub or before they went to see a band or whatever. And um, and they 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 were listening to it and they'd heard it and they heard that we were playing and Tommy said that we were playing in London that night so they came down and um, we didn't really know who they were because they you know we, we this Metallica to us there was um, somebody had written a book I think it was a guy called Jeff Barton called the 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 encyclopedia the encyclopedia Metallica Metallica right and, um, it basically um, was you know it it. it it had every band from about 1968, 69 that was involved in hard rock and, and had something about them in it. And, and, they, and it had weapon in it. So we knew about the book and, and the band came up to us and said, we're called Metallica. And we said, oh, what you mean like, I mean, on, honestly, they were, they were that unknown at the time. We said, what you mean like the, the Encyclopedia Metallica? And they said, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's kind of where we got the name from. I don't know whether they ever told me about that, but that's what they told us. And then they then, they then um, questioned us. They said, what other bands have you been in? And the drummer, who was the same drummer that was in Weapon, a guy called Bruce Bisland, and was now in Wildfire, said, well, uh, Jeff and I were in a band called Weapon. And, and they literally fell over. <laughs> they literally fell on their knees and did the we are not worthy thing right in front of us. And they said, if it wasn't to set the stage alight, there would be no Metallica. Yeah, I mean, so, it really is a killer song. And especially you said you had it back to 78, I think you said. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was about eighteen or nineteen when we were that. Yeah. So, what do you think inspired? I mean, you said you played it really fast in the studio. Was it, was it, maybe not quite as fast when you first wrote it and started playing it, or? Well, it was fast, but it wasn't as fast as that. Yeah. It was, um, it was exactly the same song though. It was, yeah. you know, the, the song was exactly the same. The riff and the chorus, and you know, the the, the lyrics and everything were, were the same. Really, a lot of it was the drummer. Again, his name is Bruce Bisland. He was a double bass drummer. And the first guy that, that played the original demo of the song, I still, I've got it somewhere, I don't know where it is, still got the, that we'd recorded at that 1978-79. He couldn't play double bass drums. So he did, he, he kind of emulated it on the snare. So, so it was fast. It had to be fast. He couldn't play on single bass drum. 
but Bruce, the the the, the original drummer, was um, could play double bass drums really, really comprehensively, really fast. So the minute he joined the band, you know, the the, the song became um, you know what it is now. Those double bass drums were you know just for, just phenomenal for a you know a seventeen or eighteen year old kid that, that he was at the time. You know, it was just something else. Do you do you remember writing the song? Like, do you remember what inspired it, or, or what the inception of it was like? Yeah, I was I was really into Deep Purple, and um, I was trying to re- rewrite Burn, the song Burn. Right, right. I remember thinking that you know it was such a great riff, the way it was bouncing off, um, bouncing off the well, not an open. Not I, I discovered quite quickly. I thought it was bouncing off of a, an open A string. Um, but um, Blackmore's cleverer than that. He was, he was basically forming the bass note in G with his thumb while he was playing that fantastic riff. So I'm kind of play, trying to play around with that and get, get something like something that felt like that. And so that's what I came up with. So I was playing, the, but I knew how the burn riff went because I knew how to play it and I didn't want to emulate it, but I wanted that kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the tempo that was originally written in which is quite fast, yeah. but not as fast as the stage line became. And so, you know, when it came to writing the lyric, I had the melody and everything. And um, when it came to writing the lyric, I just thought about, you know, the um, the analogy and the feeling that, that rush you get when you go on stage, you know. And when you're, you know, when you're, you're that young and you're playing to audiences and they're all sort of like literally running towards the stage once you come on, you know, people in those days, because it was relatively new, you know, the audience that had never seen you before, they'd either think, oh, this is it, this is what we want, and they'd run towards you, or they'd run out because it was too loud and too noisy for them. So um, so it was kind of, that was, the, that was the analogy of the song, really. You know, the fact that if it's too loud for you, then, you know, on your bike. But um, if you do like us, you know, run towards us and run us, you know, as, as, as the song says, run like Satan in a rage. I mean, I, I don't know where, where that line came from, but, you know, it's, uh, it's in the song. <laughs> yeah. So what was it like to be in the middle of the new wave of British heavy metal? It seems like all of a sudden, within a year or two, there were just like hundreds of bands and it was just became like this, you know, for a short period, it was like this really big movement. Did it kind of take you by surprise when it just kind of exploded like that? Well, it's difficult to, um, you know, I'd grown up on on bands like um, The Purple, um, Black Sabbath, Queen, then Lizzie Led Zeppelin, UFO, all the early sort yeah. of, you know, innovators of, um, of, you know, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind without those bands, it would never have been a new wave of British heavy metal. And then, of course, you know, by the time it got to the, the point where I decided I wanted to play guitar and want to get into a band, it began to taper off. And then in the UK in particular, punk became enormous about 1975, 1976. 
So you had bands that had, um, you know, a, a completely different attitude in their music, and they and they and they weren't great players. But it was all about the attitude and all about anti-establishment and everything else. So being just a teenager myself, I, I, I got it, I understood it, but it wasn't for me because it wasn't musical enough. However, you know, I had friends that were punks that became punks, that were, that were metal guys that became punks. You know, ordinary guys that went down the pub and walked around in, you know, everyday clothes. Suddenly, you know, they had spiky haircuts and they dyed their eyebrows green. God, that's why, you know. So I knew something was really, really big was happening to punk. I've always, I've always said when anybody asked me this, that without punk, you, could, you wouldn't have had the new wave of British heavy metal because it was, it was, a, it was a, an, an antithesis to punk because us guys that were playing metal at that, you know, prior to that and during that period of time, and we were actually younger than the punks, but, but we, we, we knew we could play better than they could and we knew there was more to it than they were, than they were doing. So what we did is basically when punk, we just carried on through it playing playing our hard rock we didn't really we didn't really see anything i mean we didn't see a, a, a anything happening other than more and more people suddenly began to come to the shows because i'm from london that area of london suddenly you know all, all, all of the bands from that era would, would kind of like hang around together we'll go and see the same bands together and um so we realized something was happening like, like metal was on its way back because it had gone into the doldrums for about two years during the punk era mm-hmm and there was no there was no chance for a young band to come through during that period, probably seventy six to seventy seven, seventy five to seventy seven, I'd say maybe seventy eight. Um, but then all of a sudden, around about nineteen seventy nine, um, they began to sign the rock the rock and metal bands again. So you know people like you know Iron Maiden and Saxon and Def Leppard and and us and Praying Mantis and one or two other bands began to get signed. So we knew, we, so we knew. Obviously, something something was happening, but we didn't know what it was. It's a great time. Everybody was suddenly walking around with, with you know, with motorbike jackets and tight jeans and long hair, and um, and and we're talking about Eddie Van Halen and um, Richie Blackmore. Those two were were the guitar players that everybody was talking about in England at that time, you know. And then of course we started to see things coming over from Van Halen had a, had a big big look at, uh, about it, I think, because. When the first Van Halen came out in seven, uh, album came out in '78, every, everybody that I knew that, at that time that was in the hard rock, and we used to go to all the all the gigs, all the places where you know the hard rock discos and, and nightclubs and that kind of stuff. All the people I knew absolutely loved the first Van Halen album. It was hugely influential, you know, and that was full of you know that was full of attitude as well, wasn't it? You know, it wasn't just hard rock; it was something very different they were doing at that time. For me, it, uh, you know. It might not. It might not seem that way to you. It's probably a lot younger than I am, but for me and and, and most of my, I mean, a lot of the guys I spoke, to, I used to hang around at the time, gave up playing guitar when they heard that album, because <laughs> yeah. Eddie was just like from another planet. Nobody knew what the hell he was doing, and everybody was trying. Everybody, people at the time were saying that isn't the guitar. There isn't a guitar that's going on there. It's a studio effect, and it's keyboard, it's violin, it's this, it's that, and the other. So nobody knew what he was doing. It's only when Van Halen came over to it and toured, I think in 79 with Black Sabbath, that we saw what he was doing and we, we, um, and we began to figure it out. But yeah, I, I reckon that Van Halen sort of heralded the end of the, of the, of the, um, the dominance of the punk era. Gave all us, including bands like Iron Maiden, the opportunity to, um, to come forward. It's interesting to hear that Van Halen was influential on you guys because 
I, I don't know if I've ever really heard that heard them connected to the new wave, wave of British heavy metal too much before. I mean, it it makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, I think it's just because nothing else sounds like Van Halen just because of Eddie. So, yeah, I mean, you were it's like I can see the, that you guys were inspired, but it was hard to be influenced by him. Right. Because you couldn't really no one could really copy him or, you know, we couldn't do it. That's right. We did. We didn't know what he was doing. You know, we did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it was. It, you know, we we you know we were our guitar heroes at that time were Gary Moore, Richie Blackmore, Ed, um, Gary Moore, Richie Blackmore, um, Brian May from Queen, um, Michael Schenker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe Jeff Beck and Jimi Hendrix. I mean, you know, I mean, there were there, there were some great guitarists around. I mean, absolutely brilliant and all very unique in their own way. But then Eddie. You know, he just basically busted the whole thing wide open and, and um, you know, to the point where some people actually refused to acknowledge it. You know, it was kind of like, I'll just ignore him and he'll go away sort of thing. You know, it's just too good. You know, you, know, you know, whereas those of us who love the guitar were just immediately fans and decided, well, I don't think we can do what he's doing, but we, we can maybe pick up with some of his attitude and his songwriting. He's such a great songwriter, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's so many... It's so many strings to his bow. I mean, bear, you've got to bear in mind that Eddie was only 21 himself in those days that when the album was released. So, and they were a very young band. They were, they were sort of our age so maybe a little bit older than us, but not much. Whereas the previous bands, you know, the members of, you know, I don't know, Big Purple, Led Zeppelin, Thin Lizzy, Queen, they were all, you know, 10, 15, 16 years older than us. Whereas Eddie was only maybe a year or two older than us. So that's what made it even harder for us because we thought, bloody hell, we've got to be that good at 21. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, so what you do is you take the best you can from Eddie and what you learn, and then try and you know incorporate that into what you do. Right. So, did you say? Did you actually have a record deal with Virgin? Did Weapon? We, we had a we had a publishing deal, which was you know which was the foot in the door for the record deal, and they were, mm-hmm. we were pretty much told that they were going to sign us. We had an advance on our publishing on our songwriting. And with that advance, we were invited by Fast Eddie Clark to go on tour with Motorhead okay. um, on the Ace of Spades tour. And we thought, basically, we went we went on that tour, and this would have this would probably been sort of October, about this time of year, really, you know, forty two years ago. We went on the tour. Cost, it ended up costing us a fortune, but we weren't, you know, because it was paid for via our advance. But we were under the impression that when you know the, the single was going to be released on Virgin. And we're going to be supported by them, and then the album would come out shortly after the end of the tour, or, or whatever. Um, but but Virgin decided not to sign us, and the reason they decided not to sign us was because um, they they signed the band Gillen, it's Ian Gillen's band. Yeah. Now Ian Gillen had been purple about five years before, and had, burst, had pretty much retired from the the industry. You know, probably the you know, the, the number one hard rock singer in the world and the number one hard rock band in the world. And he, and he retired. He was only young when he retired. And um, and, he, be, and he, was, he utilized his money to go into business. And, and my understanding is the business has failed. And he came back and, and, and started getting his music again. So they signed him instead of us. And obviously we understood that because, you know, we'd all been so influenced by Purple that we, that we and, and he's such an incredible singer. But we're all pleased to have him back, you know, because when you're a kid, that's how you are. You know, you, your heroes, your heroes, and, and, and that's it. You know, we didn't for one minute think, well, thanks, Ian, you know, you've buggered up our opportunities. 
um, we just thought, well, we'll, sign, we'll, we'll get another deal. Um, but of course, it doesn't. It, it never quite worked out that way. Right. So, would it's a mad, mad world? Was that the single that Virgin was was looking at releasing that you mentioned? whether to release Set the Stage Alive or It's a Mad Mad World but they decided that Mad Mad World was more radio friendly mm-hmm. um, across the board it was, it was more you know the sort of thing that daytime radio would play as not just the rock shows so what they did is they put it out as a double A side with Mad Mad World as a dominant track and um, with Set the Stage Alive on the, on the B side but they put it out as a 12 inch and a 7 inch single so it did well I mean at the time I mean in the UK there was um, they used to have a separate rock chart in the UK they had a general sort of pop chart the rock chart in the UK and it was put together by Radio Play and Sounds um, Music Magazine at the time and Kerrang and all those kind of magazines were around at the time and from all that airplay and the familiarity of the magazines and everything it was because number two in, in the UK heavy metal charts if you like and they also released it on on import as well as just in the UK so it went out to America which is where Lars and James heard it and Japan and you know it went out all over the world and it, it was you know it, it's it's still got a life of its own that song it's still it's you know I still get people asking me questions about it all the time so Virgin put that out okay yeah, yeah. I, I have the 12 inch I have the 12 inch version and that yeah that's such a great record I mean those two songs are great you know it's like I've said it's just as good in my opinion, are better than anything else. And obviously, you know, it, it hit a nerve with, with uh, Lars and James and guys like that because it's, uh, yeah, it's a hell of a record. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We, we went out, we went out, um, with the band kind of, you know, disintegrated towards the end of 81. We got frustrated with work getting signed. We were young and we were arguing with each other and we couldn't get the right management company and, you know, we made some bad decisions. I mean, kids do, you know. What you needed was a management company to come in and say, look, guys, you know, do as you're told. This is what we're going to do, which is exactly what happened to I made. Rod Smallwood said to um, Steve Harris, you basically do what I tell you. Don't do what don't don't do what you want to do. You do what I tell you. Follow me and I'll make you stars. And uh, we had people that came in and just let us run ourselves. And we were just, you know, we were drinking too much. We were, you know, doing all the stuff that you do when you're young, you know, and, um, and, and not really concentrating on what we should have been doing you know whereas bands like Maiden I think they were I think they were a bit more switched on in terms of business than we were certainly Steve Harris was anyway (laughs) 
2005 would have been 24 years after we split up and they approached Danny our singer about about it and said would you would you do would you come out and play it and we said well the band doesn't exist anymore and they said well can you get the can you get the original band back together so we did so we, we, we spoke to the drummer Bruce and we spoke to the, the bass player Baz and um, so we went out and played it again and we enjoyed it so much we thought we'll make another album so we, we made two more albums after that well, you know, while we were playing these festivals, because we hadn't played for 24 years, all the bands that were on there were, were, were a little bit in awe of Weapon because they'd all heard Set the Station like Mad Bad World and everything else. And they all kind of, you know, we didn't know that. We, did, we didn't know that. We, we, we really didn't. And then, mm-hmm. you know, guys, one of the bands, it's a Belgian band, I can't remember what they're called now. Um, but he said that when he heard Set the Station like, um, he used to basically. You know, headbang around the room with a tennis racket <laughs> and play the song over and over again to the point where his parents smashed the, smashed the record up. You know, it's, um, and, you know, I, I guess that's, a, that's a, although I didn't do the tennis racket thing, I, I guess that's a lot of what I did when I used to, you know, listen to, um, you know, Deep Purple and Queen and Thin Lizzy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's to hear that aspect of it. But we've been a positive influence on people's lives, you know, that, that, that's, that's a bit special, really, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so there's there's some other songs that Weapon recorded in 1981, like uh, Remote yeah. Control and Light of the World. Those are great songs.
I guess you just kind of, like you said, it kind of fell apart because it just, you know, it's it, you're only it was only a year or two, but it must seem like a long time at the time that you just you couldn't make it happen, and you're watching other bands, you know, yeah. their careers take off. And yeah, uh, yeah. So the band just kind of. Well, I, mean, I remember having a kind of yeah, it, it kind of imploded. We, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just to just to round that off, I remember at the time having a conversation with. Um, the guitar player John Sykes. Do you remember John Sykes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he in West in Lizzie at the time, or or no, uh, no, he was in Tigers of Pantheon. Tig- yeah, yeah. And we we were we were at the Marquee Club in London, which is where pretty much everybody used to hang out. And we'd all begun to realise it was becoming more and more difficult to get a record deal, and um, music was changing. And um, you know, the new in in, in the UK, the, what they called the New Romantic Era with Duran Duran and you know um, Spandau Ballet and Nick Kershaw and his kind of bands were all coming forward. And um, I remember chatting to the bar with, with John and uh, we were playing that night and the support band was on and John said, I think we've missed the boat, mate. You know, it was kind of that, that sort that sort of conversation, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, don't be pissing about it, John. You know, it's, um, you know, things things could still happen. And of course it did for him because within about three months he was, he was in Thin Lizzy. Right. And then, of course, White Snake. Well, he ended up getting screwed on that deal. But so, so then, how does how did Wildfire come together then? Well, Wildfire was um, it was the baby of Paul Paul Mario Day. Yeah. And Paul was um, Paul was the original. I'm pretty sure was the original singer in Iron Maiden. It was Paul Mario Day, and there was another guy, Dennis somebody. I can't remember his name now. After Paul. Um, Paul, Paul, Paul left or got kicked out of Iron Maiden because Paul was quite young and uh, although he was a great singer he didn't really have the stage craft that they were looking for so I think they, I think he got kicked out and, and then they got Paul Diano in mm-hmm. and Paul Diano who is probably not as good a singer as Paul Mario Day but he had much more, a much better stage craft so Paul, Paul Mario Day ended up playing in a band called Moore who were from the new wave of British heavy metal era as well and um, he was offered a European record deal after he, after he left Moore if he put a band together. Um, so he he did. He basically put he got various musicians together, um, including a guy called Laurie Mansworth, who played guitar with him in the band Moore. Bruce Bisland, the drummer that had been in Weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I called Martin Bushell, who played guitar in Wildfire. And bass player Jeff Brown. And um, it didn't work out with Laurie Mans- Mansworth as the other guitar player. So Bruce suggested me. At that time, I, I, w- I was kind of on the verge of joining two or three other bands. But I was really keen to play with Bruce again because he's such a great drummer and, and a great friend. So, um, so they, they, they asked me to come along and have a blast, which I did. And then when, I, when we finished, they offered me the job. So that, that's pretty much how um, Wildfire came together.
interesting. So Paul basically had the deal before he had the band. That's right, he yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> But it wasn't a big deal. It was it was uh, Mausoleum Records. Mausoleum was um, mm -hmm. an independent European company. But they really, really, really believed in what they loved Wildfire. They really believed in Wildfire. You know, they put a lot of money into us to be fair. But again, we 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 had management. We had um, we had good management. But I think it was just a bit too late for us. Uh, you know, again, it's where the timing thing comes in. I think it was just a bit too late for us. I think that we were a bit like um, Weapon. We were quite unique for our time, you know. Sort of 82, 83, was bands like, you know, Bon Jovi. It'd be Paul Hamill, that yeah. sound, mm -hmm. you know. And we'd, we'd kind of, we kind of hung our hat on, on, on writing um, really melodic, radio-friendly songs that played really heavy. So, you know, you'd had bands like Journey, you'd had bands like The Foreigner, and you had bands like Boston, who were all great rock bands and all had wrote great songs, but they weren't particularly powerful. So we kind of, we, we wanted to take that, that aspect of um, songwriting, very commercial, instant, you know, instantly catchy songs, but make them really powerful and heavy. So that's kind of where Wildfire came from, which, and, you know, It would it would have worked. Unfortunately, they weren't produced terribly well. The, the songs weren't produced, as, you know, as well as they could have been. But I, I, I reckon that first Wildfire album, Brutal's Ignorance, it's a kind of I think you know, one of the first of its kind. So two or three tracks on there are. Looking back at it in retrospect, two or three tracks on it are you know definitely the, the foundation of I think what happened a bit later on with hair metal. It was before you know. Before what? Hair metal. That was 1982. Before that. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely very catchy songs, very melodic, but really great guitars at, at the same time. Yeah, and, and powerful drums, and, and and you know lots of harmonies, lots of vocal harmonies. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. we going back to the Queen thing. You know, when I was a kid. I mean, you know, I'm a singer too, and um, so I loved harmony. You know, and um, it's interesting because. Uh, I was playing in Bulgaria about 10 years ago with um, with Dennis Stratton, who used to be in Iron Maiden, mm -hmm. and he was actually fired from Iron Maiden for listening to Queen. <laughs> Steve Harris and um, and Rod Smallwood had basically given the whole band instruction to only listen to heavy metal and nothing else. It, it, it looks to me as if, in the end of the day, it was probably good advice because you know Maiden went on and obviously became huge, but Dennis wasn't really into that. He was. Um, Dennis really, he loved the Eagles, for instance. You know, he loved vocal bands. He loved the, he loved Queen, he loved Thin Lizzy, he loved the blues. So coming from his bedroom would be, you know, the likes of Queen. And Rod would go past his his hotel room and and turn it turn it off and start listening to, you know, Black Sabbath or Deep Purple. So and he refused to do it. So he lost his job. <laughs> <laughs> he told me that. Yeah.
seems like the second Wildfire album, Summer Lightning, was maybe even more of an attempt at like a more commercial sound. W- yeah. Was it like a conscious effort or? Well, it was. It was. It was kind of. You know, we. we I had more to do with the songwriting on that one. Um, okay. On the, on the first album, some of the songs had been written, so I just added things to them, um, like choruses and and guitar harmonies. There's a track on the first album called Victim of Love, which is, at the time, would have probably been a successful single if it was released, you know, by a big label, maybe, and had been produced slightly better. Yeah, that does um, seem like so- the obvious single from the record, yeah. <laughs> So they they all look at me, you know, and um, so you know I, I I'm one of those kind of eclectic writers. I, I like to write in many styles, but I like to write something that catches your catches your eye, uh, your ear very quickly, and um, not necessarily your metal ear, but maybe you know your melodic ear. But at the same time, you know, I also write songs like you know set the stage alight and write, write the Mariah and the key and you know and, the, and some of the stuff from State Trooper and that later on, which is really really heavy because I love heavy music too. You know, I mean I love it all. But I've, I've, I've always been trying to strive to find something that, that can is, is unique and can connect instantly with people. And um, and I think if you do, if you strive for that, you end up writing something melodic. Otherwise, you alienate people, you know, too much. Maybe I don't know. It's just been my philosophy, I guess. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's right. I don't know. But it's, that's the way. That's my philosophy. But yeah, with the second album, people like you know, people have been having hit singles as um you know in hard rock bands have started having hit singles again um you know white snake rainbow van halen a Def leopard iron maiden with run to the hills and things like that they've begun to have hit singles so by the time we got to to, to um summer lightning which was 1983 you know we realized well hang on a minute, we, we we need to we need to be a bit more accessible musically we didn't necessarily consciously do it. We, we just did what we all we all, we all agreed. We all said, "Yeah, this is what we want to do." Um, so, so, so we did it. And then, you know, so one of the boys would write a song, and and then and bring it in, and everybody'd say, "Well, where's the chorus?" You know, and then look at me, and I and I'd say, "Well, how about this?" And that's that's kind of so it became much more of a you know a a, a collective songwriting team by that point, as opposed to you know, Paul and Martin writing on one side and me writing on the other. We began to write together on, on Summer Lightning. And that was the consequence of the, of, the, of the music at that point. But 
with the, the record label that you were working with, it probably just was hard to, you know, sell records and, and uh, you know, get noticed, uh, get the material out there onto the radio. And you didn't really make any, any videos, did you? Um, yeah, we did. We oh, you made, did? Um, yeah, we did. What did we make? We made, we made um, Jerusalem. We, you, you know, we, 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 I don't know if you heard, we did a, a version of the British hymn, Jerusalem. I don't know if you heard that. But the, um, we made a video for that. Okay. Um, and we, we, we were on TV in the UK and France and Italy and places like that. Oh, okay. So there's, there's live performance. And we played live. We didn't, we didn't mind. We played live. Walk upon England's mountains green and watch the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture scene and did the countenance divine shine forth the It was mainly the Summer Lightning album. That's where the record company felt that they, because they had a few bands at the time, and they felt that, that they got something there with Summer Lightning. They thought, oh, we got something a bit special here. Um, we think this could be real commercial success. But unfortunately, they didn't really have the money to push it, mm-hmm. um, to get us out on a big tour. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's money, those right connections. You know, you, you know these, it, I know it's, it seems crazy, and it's, and, it, and it's awful to think that, you know the big bands that are out there could have could have floundered like everybody else if they hadn't if the money hadn't been there to put them in front of people. Right. Yeah. Did Wildfire do much touring? Well, we 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 toured with um, the band Hawkwind in the UK, 
they weren't right. They weren't right for us. We, we you know, they, they were a kind of a space rock band, yeah. and we were, and yet we, and they were, they were, they were getting, all getting on a bit. They were all pretty approaching forty at that time. So we were, we were all kids, and we were all dressing for the day, you know. And you know, we all started to backcomb our hair and start to, you know, <laughs> get into the hair metal thing. But the audience absolutely loved us because the audience was quite young. The audience really, really liked us. We were actually fired from that tour because, you know, we, we were going down a bit too well, I think. And um, right. for one or two other reasons, but they, you know, they actually they just they decided to deal with us on on the tour. Their excuse was that we weren't right for their audience, but their audience absolutely loved us. So, but anyway, you know, that's that's a long time ago. Um, so we did that tour, and we did some festivals in Europe. Um, we played in Belgium and Holland and Germany. We played in the UK, quite a lot in the UK, sort of doing our own tours and that kind of stuff. Uh, but that was all. That was all, really. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Ooh. 
And then State Trooper is basically Wildfire, but you replace Paul with Gary Barden, it seems like. It seems like that, but what it what it was is um, Gary Barden had left the Michael Schenker group. Mm-hmm. We knew Gary because he used to kind of hang around the same sort of places that we did. Lovely, lovely man. Really, really great guy. And a big star at the time. I mean, you know, he was he was a big star. I mean, he's, you know, very, very uh, unique voice and, and charisma on stage and all that kind of stuff. Gary basically um, ended up getting signed by the same management company that we had called London's, London's Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, we were signed to London's Pride and we were looked after by a guy, a guy called Dave Chapman, who we're all still friends with. I mean, Dave was great. And we were playing, we were on that tour with Hawkwind and Gary was putting State Trooper together and he put, and he, he put, put the band, he put the band together with two brothers. Um, they were the Johnson brothers. Steve Johnson and Vasco Johnson, the bass player, who went on to play with um, Saxon later on, and um, they were great, really, really good. And they, and, but they really liked Wildfire, and they used to come see us play. Um, but they lost their drummer, and they asked if Bruce could step in, and um, so Bruce stepped in for their demos, and he was so good that they couldn't replace him. So they, <laughs> so they asked him to join State Trooper, and um, you know Gary was a big star, and, and so. So Bruce came to me and said, look, I've been asked to do this. And I said, well, look, you can't turn it down, Bruce. You know, it's an opportunity, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to do it, you know. I mean, I, you know, I want you in my band, but, you know, I'm sure you'd say the same to me. And then literally the last gig that the band did was a live gig on a TV program in the, in the UK called ECT, which meant extracelestial transmission. So you, you had sort of four live bands playing in front of a live audience every Friday night. And the, the top of the bill band would be a big band. It'd be an ACDC, you know, Thin Lizzy, you know, whatever at that time in the UK. And we we were we, we went on before, um, who was it? Oh, it was Gary Moore and Phil Lennon. They were doing the song Out in the Fields. Do you know that song? Yeah. Uh-huh. It was a big hit in the UK. And um, they, I think they were in a chance with it in the UK at the time. And we did two live songs before that. So that was our last sort of gig, if you like. And the next day, got a telephone call and um, Gary said that he didn't want to continue working with the Johnson Brothers. You know, and he'd like, <laughs> he'd like to use the musicians in, in Wildfire for his new band. So we, we basically, we had to make a decision there and then. And um, unfortunately, um, tell Paul that we were, we, were all, we were all leaving. Right. Which was... Um, which was not great. I got the job, as I always did, of telling Paul the situation. I think to this day, he made me. Uh-huh. And it, was, it wasn't down to me. I mean, I was probably the only one that was in two minds about it because I, I believed in Paul. I, I loved, I loved Paul, Paul's voice and we were writing together really, really well. Don't get me wrong, I loved Gary too, but I, I thought the wildfire were onto something. And um, it's just the feeling you get, you know. Uh, but in the end, the bottom line is I realized quite quickly, if I stayed, it'd be me and Paul and nobody else. We'd have to replace the rest of the band. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's how State Trooper came about. So, um, you know, the management company and Gary wanted Wildfire as, as musicians to be part of State Trooper. And then State Trooper ends up being much poppier, more of a more of like an AOR band. I, I do I do a series of episodes on my podcast where I play AOR songs and I've played She Got the Look on there. That's a yeah. that's a really great AOR song. I love that song. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And so, the, you know, how did that, how did that, the sound of State Trooper, was it just because that kind of was, had more potential in terms of being successful, that kind of a style or this kind of sound that State Trooper landed on? Or is that just what Gary, the the direction that Gary wanted to take it or? No, again, it was, it was, it was just a, just a natural thing. I mean, you had the same writers and musicians from Wildfire and just Gary's voice on top. Uh, but, but Gary's actually a very commercial writer. It just, I don't think it, it doesn't write commercially deliberately. Mm-hmm. He just seems to have a pulling a great line that, that you, you remember. With State Trooper, we already had three songs written for the next, which would have been the third Wildfire album. One was um, Veni Vidi Vici. The other was set, um, set Fire to the Night. And the third one was She Got the Look. So we, we, we'd actually written those for Wildfire, but Paul hadn't sung them. Paul, Paul had a back injury at the time, and we were in rehearsal, and Paul hadn't sung them. So myself and the bass player were singing them. So you had... You'd had Veni Vidi Vinci, which um, was written originally by myself and Martin Bushel. We'd written the guitar parts and the melodies, but we hadn't completed the lyrics because we, we, we were kind of flaming around trying to find something to write about that was different and unique. Set Fire to the Night was the same thing. It was written by myself and, and Marcy Bushel. And then we had She Got the Look, which I, which I wrote. And so we brought them into Gary. And Gary said, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, have, a, I'll have a tweak around with these. So we did. So we came up, up with uh, Vinny Vinny Vici, um, which basically means is, is Latin for I came, I saw a conquered. And he wrote the song about the, the whole idea of, you know, the Christians and the lions. And, you know, and um, and the gladiators. I mean, that song is basically about gladiators. And set fire to the night. You know, he, he played around with that. Came up with some great lines for that as well. He's got, he's got an incredible sense of timing in his voice, Gary. He's got a very unique sense of timing for this.
she got the look, they basically said, well, I, I can't really do anything with that, Jeff. You know, I, I'm, I'm happy with it as it is. So he left it as it was and just sang it pretty much the way I sang the demo. And um, and that's, that, that, so those three songs were really wildfire songs. But again, you know, the record company said, by that time, we were talking about, I think, I think that, that, that album was about 1985 when we started to write that album. So the record company said, okay, this is really, this is commercial stuff. And by that time, Bon Jovi were happening. Big, you know, and, and then and Motley Crue and bands like that. And um, we weren't competing with them, but we found ourselves in that arena. You know, we just found it was, it was almost like a natural progression. As you're young and you're writing, you know, you're always trying to find that elusive melody as a songwriter. That, that's what, you know, you're always trying to find something that, you know, that every, everybody will, will remember and, you know, and will stay with people for a long time. And, well, certainly that was my angle on it all anyway. And um, so it, it, I think your music just naturally becomes more mature, more, more commercial. It goes away, it, go, it goes away slightly from the, um, the cult side of things. You know, it, it becomes more accessible to larger groups of people. You know, we found, for instance, with Wildfire, we found, and, and State Street, but we found more girls coming to our gigs, mm-hmm. you know, than we did boys. And we had, we, Weapon had, had a nice mix, but we, with Wildfire and State Street, we found that, you know, we, we were, instead of just having all the headbanging boys, and there were plenty of those, which is great, we also had lots of lovely looking ladies. <laughs> you know, we weren't going to complain about that. <laughs> But it seems like State Trooper ended up not lasting very long, huh? Well, it was 85. Well, it, again, it was, you know, we, we, we couldn't we couldn't get that elusive big deal. And Gary had a big, signed to a big publishing deal at the time, Warner Brothers. Everybody that wanted to sign the bands at that time knew the money was in the songs. Yeah. And they, they, they wanted the band, uh, they wanted all of the band. They wanted um, the songs, they wanted the rights to the merchandise, they wanted the you know, the recording rights. They wanted all that stuff, but Ga- Gary's stuff was all, was already signed up to Warner Brothers because he was working with Michael Schenker. So, you know, we, we had a really, really great meeting with Geffen at the time. Geffen signed Aerosmith. They didn't sign us. They, they you know, honestly, we, we were really, really unlucky. We had, we our management company had offices in, in a place called Liverpool Street in North London and um, by a very, very well-known London train station called Liverpool Street Station. And um, we had, not David Geffen himself, but his, sec- his, his right-hand man came over to meet us, came out, took us all out for a meal, and, you know, and, and took us down the pub and everything. And he absolutely wanted to sign Stage Trooper. And we, we, again, we thought it was in the bag. And then we got, we got a phone call from the management company. And the management company said, well, they're not going to sign you. We said, well, why not? And they said, well, you're, you're publishing. Gary's publishing was with, with uh, um, Warner Brothers and mine was with Virgin Music Publishing. So they, they realized that me and Gary were the, you know, an important writers in the band and they knew they weren't going to get our publishing. So um, they decided at that time, I believe Aerosmith were out of their publishing and, um, and got signed. But Aerosmith obviously were much bigger in the States and Geffen were a big band from that perspective. But I think they had issues with, with Aerosmith at the time because Aerosmith, they felt were a yesterday's band. They felt they were a band that had gone as far as they could, whereas with us, they thought we were we were an up and coming band and we could have we could have become massive, but they weren't prepared to do it without the um, without the publishing. Yeah, the damn business, <laughs> the way the the way the business has worked over the years. There's so many stories like that where there's just these stupid technicalities that 
keep the doors closed. Exactly. For for someone like you, it, it's just crazy to look back on it. And it's like it basically in this five year period, you have like you're a part of this whole heavy metal explosion with weapon, and you know you've got this almost deal with Virgin, and then you've got this opportunity with Paul Mario Day, and then that turns into an opportunity with Gary Barton, and it must have just seemed like a blur. And then you come out of it, it at was. the end, and you're like, well, what do I do now, probably, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. Exactly. That's exactly how it was. And, and you know, by that time, I'd, um, you know, I'd, I'd met my future wife, and, and we, we had a daughter in a situation where I, I could no longer, you know, um, work as a musician because I just, I just wasn't earning enough money. You know, um, in those days, bands cost money. You didn't actually make money from them. As the as management companies and the record companies or publishing companies put money into bands, you end up owing money. You know, unless you broke big, but, but they, they, were, they were taking chances with, with young musicians, you know. So I decided probably about, about 1988, I think, State Tribute just finished the tour. We've been out to Spain, which is where I live now, and we've been out to uh, we've been out on tour with uh, Blue Waste Cult and did some festivals and things. And and you know, I just thought it's it's not going to happen for me. It's not going to happen for me. You know, I've got to make a choice here. Do I? What do I, What do I do? You know, and and, and to be on, I'll be on, to be honest with you, I was missing my family when I was away. I was missing my daughter. You know, it was just a baby, and I and I was coming back and. And she'd grown, and you know, I'm thinking, oh God, I'm, I'm missing all that, you know. So I decided, time to get out, get get your hair cut, and get get yourself a proper job again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those years, those five years, people never. It's 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 a real joy that pe- that people remember those 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 songs and those bands so fondly. You know, they, you know, people really, really, really love those bands. Yeah, it must feel great to at least have accomplished. I mean, that's the most important thing is that you did good work that has had a, a lasting effect. And, um, yeah. you know, as an artist, you definitely succeeded. I mean, <laughs> you know, the success, you can judge it on in a lot of different ways. But um, the just the lasting effect of a song like Set the Stage Alight is... Uh, definitely something to be very proud of well thank thanks very much that brian I, you know i am i mean i didn't realize it at the time and um you know when i came out of the music business i thought it all it all been forgotten and everything it was only later on when i started playing in europe and places that um i realized it wasn't and you know when i got the, the phone call from uh jeff barton who put the 79 revisited album together and he said he was doing it with lars ulrich and some other people, and and they basically said they wouldn't do the compilation without the song. You know, I, again, typically, I just said, "Yeah, take it." You know, I, I, it's it's an honor for me for it to be um, recognized in that way. You know, it's too bad Metallica never covered it. <laughs> well, the track um, "Hit the Lights" it's very similar, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
so even though you you left the music business at some point i guess you got back into it at least on some level huh yeah well, well the i never stopped playing i, I, I continue playing bands and right. doing the occasional you know uh session and and you know playing some solos and writing some stuff for people and that sort of stuff and playing around london and what have you and then as i say you know rewind on to about 2005 and uh, well, in actual fact, before that, 2002, there was there was a, an online petition from Japan to issue the first State Trooper album uh, on CD because it was only released on vinyl and and and, and cassette at the time. And um, I didn't, I, I I was unaware of this, and I hadn't spoken to the members of the band other than Bruce, who, the, the drummer, who's you know still a great friend of mine. And Gary Barden rang me and said, um, "There's a petition to release." our album on CD. So we said, okay, well, wh why don't we do it ourselves? You know, it'd be easy enough. We still got the master tapes and blah, blah, blah. So we did. I think we, we, we printed up about 5,000 copies thinking that, you know, we, you know, we'd sell 5,000. We sold 25,000 the first two weeks and it, and it, and it entered the Japanese um, import charts. And then we began to get a calls from Japan from their various distributors to put it into their shops and various bits and pieces, which we did. And then we, <laughs> you know, incredibly got offered a record deal by uh, EMI in Japan to make another album. Right. <laughs> so, um, and so we, we made the album, The Calling, 20, oh God, how many years after that, after the original release, 20 odd years after the original release. Um, so that kind of brought me back into the business you know, properly on the on on the recording side, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it was a it was a, a really pleasant surprise to be talking to people all over the world again about, you know, mu about that music, about the songs, any bit of Inchi, she got the look, and set fire to the night, and and um, uh, shape of things to come, which is the opening track on there. I mean, the, you know, pe people absolutely loved it, and you know, they said that that they'd grown up with it, and you know. And we, we were asked to play festivals and gigs, which we did. We did a few. And then and people would turn up from Japan to see us playing in in Sheffield, in you know, half, you know, at the northern part of England and what have you, and in London and from Japan and Germany and America. You know, I mean people were coming from all over the place to see us and they seemed to know more about us than we did. It was a great time. We really, really enjoyed it. But Gary got offered the opportunity to go back and sing with Michael Schenker again. Mm -hmm. So um he had to take that and uh, bruce the drummer is is playing in the glam rock group the suite um we were still touring all over europe and um and earning very good money doing it so he didn't want to take the chance and and from my perspective i was working full time then and you know didn't really want to take the chance financially either at a mortgage and everything you know i didn't want to take the chance financially either so that was it so that was me coming back in you know sort of like to the music business and playing again
Thank you so much for talking to me, Jeff. Uh, it was great. Appreciate the chat. I'll be back.